In the end, it's our ideals, our values that built America. To the crew of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to episode 24, Liquidation. The Peloponnesian War has now been going on for 24 years, over two decades. Now, that is long enough for us to see some very real trends. There have been periods of peace, but the vast majority of this time, there has been war. Now, the trend of the war so far between Athens and Sparta is a pendulum. It's not like they were evenly matched at the very beginning, and then there's been one side getting slowly weaker while the other side slowly gains ground, and we can see the trend. One side's going to lose. It's just a matter of time. It's not like that at all. Instead, what we have here is a pendulum. It's been going back and forth the whole time, so let's say Athens will gain some big advantage. It'll look like Sparta's going to have to surrender, but then all of a sudden Sparta will have a grand victory, and they'll be the ones in the lead. Now, although militarily this is a close match, it's been going back and forth, it's different on a societal level. Athens started this war fabulously wealthy. Not only financial reserves, but also on a societal level. They had poetry, they had art, they had music. People were coming in to Athens from its empire because they saw it as the center of a culture. They saw it as something that was fostering the culture around it. And that is really where Athens is suffering. Athens is still cranking out incredible victories. That's exactly what's happened in this last episode. Athens was on its last legs. It looked like Sparta was going to win. And then through a series of stunning victories, Sparta and its allies have lost something like 150 ships in a few months. Months. That's the size of like two fleets that we've been dealing with this entire show. It's massive. So Athens is winning this war right now but they're broke at home. Not only are they just short of cash and are having trouble paying for their fleet's missions, but there are people starting to starve to death. Athens has actually enacted a form of a welfare program so that the very poorest in Athens receive a stipend from the government just so they can eat. So militarily, Athens looks strong, but on a societal level, they're showing signs of breaking down. Sparta knows this. Sparta did just suffer this massive defeat, losing an entire fleet, but things are looking up for them. They're still fine at home. Persia is backing this war for them, so they don't have to worry about bearing the cost of it like Athens does. And so it's after this massive Spartan defeat that Sparta makes a peace offer. But it's not a peace offer like you're expecting. Sparta knows that Athens is breaking down at home, that people are starting to starve to death, and so when they offer peace... It's from a position of strength. Sparta sends envoys to the Athenian assembly and listen to what this envoy has to say. When he addresses the assembly of Athens, he acknowledges that this war is hard for them both, but that it is far more difficult for Athens to sustain this. He tells Athens, We have the richest king in the inhabited world funding this war for us. 
Who's funding yours? The poorest people in the inhabited world. He's referring to the very citizens of Athens. He's calling them some of the poorest people in the known world. And he doesn't stop here. He moves on and he says, right now we're fighting for the mastery of the water, but we have mastery of the land. When we lose battles, the king replaces ships and we can come back at you again. We're fighting for mastery of the sea. You're fighting for your very survival. Because keep in mind here, Athens has an empire, and it's not full of willing subjects. Many people want to leave the Athenian Empire, but they don't have the strength to do it themselves, and so they're looking to Sparta to lead this war against Athens so they can be free. And Sparta plays into this. Their banner right now is to free the Greeks. That's why Sparta is allegedly fighting this war, to free the Greeks. Now, this is a bit of propaganda, of course, but this means that if Athens falls, it's not falling to lose its empire, it's going to fall into the hands of the angry subjects that it's suppressed for decades now. The justice of Athens has waxed and waned, although the beginning of the Athenian Empire, they were fairly lenient with their subjects, they would try to settle things in the courts of law, and so even if something was unfair, they could at least point to the law and say it was settled in the courts, we're doing this the right way, this is still a very just empire. But that's changed. At first, they tried to run their empire with justice, and as they win a few battles and get a little stronger, they realize that maybe they have the strength to actually just change the government in these cities. If there's a city that keeps rebelling and continues to give us trouble, well, let's just go in and make it a democracy. Who cares what they want? And maybe take a little extra money for our trouble as well. And then they win a few more battles. They get a little stronger. And some of these cities, if they rebel, Athens shows up on their doorstep and not only changes their government, but wipes them out. Kills every man, takes the women and children, and sells them into slavery. Now, in all fairness, that does only happen a few times. But how many times does it need to happen before people in your empire start to view you as a tyrant? And then Athens gets a little stronger and emphasizes this point. It shows up on the island of Milos informs them that they need to be part of their empire because we suspect you might be helping the enemy and when Milos refuses they just wipe them out anyway. They kill all the men, take the women and children into slavery and if that's not enough they send Athenians down there to resettle this city. And so not only is the original population killed or sold into slavery but their culture is gone. You only need for that to happen once before people in your empire start to view you as a tyrant, even if you walk it back, even if you try to lessen and soften your language, which is something Athens has been doing. They've been treating allies a lot more fair. They've been honoring their treaties, like really to the letter of the law in some of these cases. But what does it matter? People are still going to view you as a tyrant. And so when Sparta is making war against Athens, they're doing so under the banner of freeing the Greeks and city-states around the empire are running to this banner. And so Sparta makes this peace offer and it seems quite reasonable. Athens doesn't have to give up anything, except for a few really key locations that are really important to Sparta, but Sparta's also gonna give over some key locations to Athens. But for the most part, when Sparta makes this peace treaty, it's to hold the Athenian Empire as is. Status quo, everybody for the most part keeps what they have. But this is when we get into the second trend of this war. 
If the first trend is this general pendulum of military strength, each side gaining the advantage and it goes back and forth, the other trend is that when that pendulum is right at the peak of its swing, at the very height, and you think one side might break, a demagogue just so happens to show up and convince the people to do otherwise. And it, it's easy to kind of understand this too. Athens, it's fresh in their memory, their peak of glory. It was only a couple decades ago. There are still plenty of people alive, the vast majority of the population, in fact, that are actually of adult age and fighting this war, that can remember the glory days of Athens when the Parthenon was being constructed, when they were building projects everywhere, where they had unquestionable control of their empire, and fabulously wealthy as well. And so after some stunning military victory, like has just happened, instead of accepting peace, they see this as the chance to restore their empire. In many ways, what Athens reminds me of, in this respect at least, is a gambling addict. Someone who's sitting at the slot machine, putting coin after coin, and just convinced that the very next time they try, they'll be able to win the jackpot, to get their empire back. And if that's the Athenian assembly, what really makes it difficult, because it's, it's tough, right? I mean, they have this in their memory. They want to restore their empire. And so what makes it really tough to break this gambling cycle, if we keep this comparison going, is these demagogues. Right when they're thinking, okay, maybe I should stop pulling this lever, I've almost used all my coin, I still have to go buy dinner tonight and feed my family, the casino shows up, puts its hand on your shoulder, and say, no, you're so close. Remember, you're a superstitious person, your legs are crossed and you pulled the lever. Uncross your legs, try it again. Things are different now, it'll be better. Keep pulling the lever, you'll win eventually. This is the role that the demagogues are playing in Athens. The people in Athens that encourage the assembly to continue this war. So all that being said, it probably does not surprise you to learn that Athens rejects this peace treaty of Sparta. Why? What's different now? What's the thing that made them think they can actually win this war and restore their empire again? Well, two things, really. The first is Alcibiades. Alcibiades is finally back in Athens, and look at the brilliant victories he's had at Cyzicus, Byzantium, many other places. He's the military genius we've been missing, and he's going to lead us to victory. Now, I know you're probably rolling your eyes right now. I, I was too. But think about how this would look to the Athenian assembly. Let's say you're somebody who's been living in Athens for a while. You've been keeping track with the wild exploits of Alcibiades. When did things really start to go south in this Peloponnesian War for Athens? The Sicilian Expedition. The Sicilian Expedition was something that Alcibiades wanted to do, and he was elected to be general. But then when they left to go invade Sicily, this is when Alcibiades became an outlaw. He got in trouble for allegedly profaning religious mysteries and the desecration of some statues. And so he went on the run. He left Athens, he went to Sparta for a while, then Persia for a while, and he's been gone for a number of years. And then the Sicilian expedition falls apart. They lose tens of thousands of men, hundreds of ships, and Athens has just defeat after defeat, revolts go off, things start going downhill for Athens. And then, about five years go by, Alcibiades starts fighting for Athens again, off in the distance, and you hear of these great victories that he's winning, and right as he shows up back in Athens, suddenly Sparta is asking for peace. If you're your average citizen just watching all these events take place, it looks like there's a perfect correlation between Alcibiades leading in Athens and how Athens is actually doing. So the demagogue's argument that Alcibiades is back and he can win this war for us, 
probably doesn't look too crazy. It seems like that's exactly what's happened over the past eight years. So that's the first point. The other thing that's different is Persia. Now, as the Spartan envoy boldly reminded the Athenian assembly, Persia is backing this war for us. We have the richest king in the world funding this war, and you're broke. But here's the thing. Persia has been backing Sparta, but Sparta just lost like 150 ships. That's not a great return on investment. So what Athens is hoping is that because of these recent victories, they'll show Persia that they, Athens, are actually the better investment of Persian money. That they'll get the Persian backing, Persia will pull out from funding Sparta, and suddenly Athens will have a serious advantage. So these are the two reasons that Athens rejects this Spartan peace. Is one, Alcibiades, and two, hopefully they can leverage the Persians against the Spartans. And so, this war must continue. Now, the Spartan naval leader was killed in the last episode, and so they need to select a new one. The man they pick is named Lysander. Now, Lysander, as you could probably expect, he's ambitious, he's hard-charging, he's skilled in combat. But hold on. He's all those things, but for a Spartan. He's like a caricature of a Spartan. He's not just ambitious, but he's so ambitious that not only can he see himself doing really well in Sparta but he can see Sparta taking the place of Athens, not just defeating it. He can see Sparta becoming its own empire. And this applies on a personal level too. He is ambitious, but for a Spartan. And so what he would do in Sparta is find some of the most influential men and become close with them. And they would be brutal, terrible people, but he would know that their connections would in turn make him more powerful. You see, Lysander is from a poor background. This has been the increasing trend of Sparta as it runs out of these cream-of-the-crop, top-tier Spartan citizens that it usually likes to send into battle and have commanding their fleets and armies. Instead, Lysander is broke. His mom might have even been a helot, like the lowest slave class in Sparta. But Lysander, through these connections, has found himself a sponsor. Remember, in order to be in good standing in Sparta, you had to go through the agoge, that brutal Spartan training, and then also provide food for the state that would in turn be used to feed their soldiers. If you weren't wealthy enough to do this, well, you were kind of shunned. You weren't seen in the good light in the Spartan society because you weren't contributing to that hive mind that they have. Lysander solved this problem by finding a sponsor, someone to pay this food share so that he could go on, receive all the normal training of a Spartan citizen, and now, he's worked his way all the way up to the point where he's just been selected to lead the forces of Sparta. So if that is Sparta doubling down to win this war, Persia is busy doing the same thing. Instead of seeing Sparta as a bad investment, they decide to just give more to help them win this war. Now we've mentioned two satraps so far for Persia in this area. There's Parnabas that we discussed quite a bit in the previous episode, but then there's also the other satrap further to the south that has been interacting with Sparta so far. He's the guy that Alcibiades advised to only give Sparta enough to make them dependent on you, but pay them really poorly. He's just been replaced. He's just been replaced by the son of the king himself, Cyrus. Like I said, Persia is doubling down. Now Cyrus, he is the son of the king, but he is also a 16-year-old kid that's just been put in charge of subjugating Athens through Spartan military might. And Lysander and Cyrus could not be a better match. 
Lysander has spent his life figuring out how to get close to powerful men and then form a close connection with them and leverage that to make himself more powerful. Cyrus is the son of the most powerful man in the Greek world at this point. This is a perfect match. So when Lysander shows up, Cyrus gives him his full support. Not only does he give Lysander the pay for the Spartan fleet that the previous satrap was holding out on, but he gives the Spartan fleet a raise. He even decides to just pay them more just because Lysander asked. And on top of all this, he gives a month's bonus to Lysander in the fleet just to show goodwill. Lysander and Cyrus hit it off so well that at one point Cyrus even declares he'll melt down his throne if he needs to to fund this war. Which is teenage hyperbole at its best. But there's something else you should know about Cyrus. Cyrus, he is the son of the king, but the Persian throne doesn't always transition that smoothly from generation to generation. Civil war is not terribly uncommon, and Cyrus is playing a bit of a deep game here. He knows that one day he'll probably have to fight a civil war to win control of the throne. And so, yeah, he is being really ambitious and he has that teenage hyperbole, but he's also really strategic. He's trying to win powerful friends such as Lysander, who can bring the force of the Spartans to him if he needs it. He's in this area to one, subjugate Athens, but to do so in such a way that he's left with strong allies that can help him call up an army in the future if he needs it. So with these gifts from Cyrus, Lysander gathers the pay, the raises, the advancement, and heads back to the west to continue this war. Now naturally, as Athens prepares to go back into war themselves, who do you think they pick? They pick Alcibiades to be their general. Alcibiades has so much fame and favor right now that everyone kind of wants to do what he says, but for different reasons. First off, the way this is generally categorized, of course, it varies from person to person. But some of the lower classes who really like Alcibiades want him to be general. Some even talk openly of him being a tyrant, taking over Athens and ruling it with sole power. Now, as you can imagine, the aristocracy, some of the other powerful people in Athens, didn't like this talk at all. But it was so brazenly being talked about openly, they just want to get rid of the guy. And so some of the leaders in Athens also wanted Alcibiades to be a general just so he'd go away on campaign, get rid of the guy. Alcibiades has finally created himself into being this legend. Everybody either loves him or fears what he can do. This is Alcibiades at the very peak of his power so far. So between everybody liking him so much or just wanting him to be gone, they don't only make him general, but they allow him to pick whoever else he wants as his co-generals, as his co-commanders. And so there's Alcibiades, he picks a handful of people loyal to him to accompany him on this campaign. Athens decides to give him a hundred triremes, 1500 hoplites, 150 cavalry, and frankly, all the hopes and dreams of Athens. Now, as Alcibiades and company head off on this campaign, even though people favor him so much or just were scared of him, he is still handicapped. Athens is still broke, and so he has to collect money for this campaign as he goes. And so as he makes his way east, he does a couple raids and things, but he finally catches up with the fleet of Lysander. When he finds Lysander, Lysander is in this really strong port position, this new base that he's created, 
and Lysander has his entire fleet with him. That's 90 ships. Alcibiades has 80. Because on the way over, Alcibiades had to leave some of his ships in other places to deal with other issues. So right now he has about 80. Now this is one of the interesting things to me about the battles, and especially in the later Peloponnesian Wars, that you've got the military might and how you, you know, stack the forces up against each other on paper, but that's only part of the equation here. Really what's driving this fight is economics. Lysander has a fleet that is well paid. They just got a raise. They're so well paid. And the money actually shows up when it's supposed to show up. You compare this to the Athenian fleet, and if they're not conquering, they're probably not going to get paid. And so Lysander, even though he slightly outnumbers Alcibiades, is in no hurry to fight here. He's in a strong position. Meanwhile, deserters from the Athenian fleet are coming over to his fleet for the better pay. And not only is that draining the forces of Athens, but they're also bringing info over. So Lysander has a great idea of how many ships there are, what types of ships there are, how experienced are the crews, who's leading the ships, who's leading the entire force. He has a good idea of what's going on over in the Athenian fleet. So he's in no hurry to engage Alcibiades. Meanwhile, Alcibiades is sitting off the coast with his 80 ships, wondering how exactly is he going to pay all these guys. So about a month passes like this. Alcibiades is waiting for something to happen, trying to gather money to pay his troops, Lysander's gathering deserters, and biding his time. It's comes to a point where Alcibiades actually needs to leave to go collect money so that he can continue to pay this fleet, in addition to support some other missions of the Athenian forces that are off in other areas. So he takes some troop ships and leaves. He leaves all the triremes there to guard the Lysander and the Spartan fleet, and when he leaves, what would normally happen in a situation like this is he would put a temporary commander in charge of the fleet. This would probably be somebody who's seen a lot of combat before, probably in charge of a particular trireme that does really well, and he would be the temporary commander of the fleet. Instead, Alcibiades puts his steersman in charge, the guy that steers his own personal trireme. Now, this has never been done before in the history of the Athenian navy. Maybe Alcibiades really trusted the guy because they had served together so long. Whatever the case may be, he leaves the steersman in charge of the entire fleet and tells him under no circumstances try to engage Lysander in the fleet. I want you to sit right here. Don't do anything. I'm going to go drop some troops off. I'm going to collect some cash and then I'll be back. Alcibiades leaves. And this steersman, instead of being loyal to what Alcibiades is saying, he has ideas of his own. You see, he wants fame and fortune just like Alcibiades, and he's going to imitate one of the great victories of Alcibiades, Sisychus. He thinks that he can feign a rout with a small portion of his troops with his triremes, and as they run away and Lysander comes out to chase him with the enemy fleet, then he'll ambush him from the side. So this is what he tries to do. He brings several of his ships out in front of the enemy fleet, then, feigned surprise, turns around and starts to run. The Athenian triremes start pulling away from the Spartan fleet, but here's the thing. Lysander knows everything that's going on, so he's not going to fall for a trap. Instead, what he does is spring out really quick and engage these ships before they can get away. With just a couple of his ships, he goes out with three triremes, hits this temporary Athenian commander, and sinks his ship, captures several of them. And so the Athenian fleet that's waiting off around the corner, that's supposed to spring this big ambush, is surprised. They don't know what to do. 
Lysander sees the confusion, after all, he just killed their temporary commander, and so he brings out the rest of his fleet and attacks. Athens is a leaderless fleet, and so this goes just about as well as you would suspect it does. The Athenian fleet simply just turns to try to run. Lysander's able to catch up with him, though, and he catches 22 Athenian ships before the Athenian fleet is able to get away. Alcibiades comes back a couple days after this and is obviously horrified. The temporary commander has been killed, his steersman, so he can't even punish him. He takes some reinforcements that he brought back with him, and all these triremes go out to challenge Lysander to battle again, but Lysander doesn't take it. Why would he? He has every advantage here. Alcibiades tries to scrape together some form of victory, so he takes together his triremes and goes to attack a nearby town. But even that doesn't work out well because the enemy army is closer than he thought, and they show up and all the Athenians are driven back to their ships and they have to go on the run again. Word of these failures leak back to Athens. And he has the entire faith of Athens in him. You see, Alcibiades has truly dug his own grave. Alcibiades has spent his entire adult life, even before he was an adult really, convincing everybody around him that he is a legend. And finally, finally, after decades, people believe him. But the downside of this is that when he fails at anything, anything, Athens never can quite wrap their mind around Alcibiades failing at something. He can't fail. He's Alcibiades. He's a legend. And so instead, they think that any failure of Alcibiades is actually something that he's doing intentionally that he's playing a deep game, that he's holding out on them somehow. So now that Alcibiades does fail, and word of this leaks back to Athens, he's replaced as commander. Clearly, he can't be trusted. Alcibiades, in the mind of the Athenian people, can really only be a legend or a traitor. And he's no longer a legend. Alcibiades runs. Alcibiades leaves the Athenian fleet, and you see, he's been in the Hellespont for quite a while now. He's been spending a lot of time away from Athens, and so what he's been doing with all this time when he was still in exile is building a little nest egg, building his own private fortress on the Gallipoli Peninsula. So now that Alcibiades comes face to face with the fact that he has no place in Athens anymore, he goes into self-imposed exile in this fortress that he built. He leaves the fleet. Now, of course, Athens has to replace him as the leader of the fleet, and you might suspect that they pick one of the other popular people we've been talking about, Thrasybulus, Theramenes, both very capable naval leaders, but they were also friends with Alcibiades. They were close to him, and so when Alcibiades disgraced and then leaves, it puts Thrasybulus and Theramenes in a very bad light, and so they actually get passed over for this election cycle. Instead, they elect a man named Conan to be the military leader of the navy. Now, Conan is given 70 ships, and he leaves to go confront the enemy fleet. He does some attacks along the way, but as he's heading towards the fleet of what he probably suspects is Lysander, he receives a message. You see, there's a new Spartan military commander. They have this kind of strange rule that no military commander of the fleet can serve for more than one year. It's been a year, so even though Lysander's doing great, has tons of cash, huge fleet, good victory under his belt, he still has to be replaced. The man that is selected to command the Spartan fleet is named Callicratidas, and he comes thundering onto the scene. 
He's the opposite of Lysander in many ways. He's more conservative, he has no desire for Sparta to have an empire, but as far as the drive and ambition, they're about equal. It's just a matter of how it plays out. And so Conan, as he's heading towards this fleet, he receives a message from Callicratidas. The first interaction that they have is Callicratidas sending Conan this note that says simply, I will stop your affair with the sea. She is mine. This is how Callicratidas enters this war zone. Now, it's a bold move against Athens, but back in the Spartan fleet, things aren't going so smoothly for him. You see, before he actually got to the Spartan fleet and Lysander was still in charge and Lysander was about to turn it over, Lysander is an ambitious guy. He's a very proud man, and so he doesn't want to turn over this fleet for no reason. And so his allies in the Spartan fleet start spreading rumors about how unqualified Callicratidas is. And then just to top it off, Lysander takes all the cash that he has left over from Cyrus, the Persian prince, and gives it back to Persia. So when Callicratidas shows up, the fleet not only doesn't want him as a commander, but suddenly it's broke. Obviously, Callicratidas is infuriated, but he doesn't back down from Lysander. He instead confronts him directly. Lysander proclaims himself to be Lord of the Sea. Callicratidas starts pointing out all the strongholds that Athens still has. He tells them that you're not doing your job. It's my turn now. So he takes control of the fleet, but even the fleet, a lot of the men that are rowing the oars and everything, don't want Callicratidas. They've heard the rumors about him. And so he assembles the fleet and basically dares them to challenge him. He says, is there anybody else here more fit for command than I am? Nobody says anything. He says, does anybody want to go back and tell Sparta about this? Does anybody have any complaints? And he knows that nobody can say anything. To say anything against him, Callicratidas, would be to voice opposition to Sparta back home. They appointed him. They made him the commander. He has the authority of Sparta. He directly challenges the entire fleet. Nobody says anything. And so he turns to go to Cyrus to get his money back. He goes to the Persian prince, and the Persian prince snubs him. This isn't Lysander. This isn't the smooth operator that knows how to charm the rich young ruler into just paying gobs of cash. This is Callicratidas. This is the classic conservative Spartan. My way or the highway, and there is no diplomacy in it. Callicratidas goes to meet with the Persian prince, and Cyrus refuses to see him. He makes Callicratidas wait for two days before granting him an audience, but then... When he's ready to grant him an audience, Clicratidas is gone. Clicratidas doesn't have time to wait around for Persian princes. Instead, he leaves without the money, goes back to the Spartan fleet, and starts fundraising. He shows up in Miletus, which, remember, at this point has rebelled against Athens. They're no longer in the Athenian Empire. And him, with the other Spartans, go into Miletus and gives a speech. He starts telling the people of Miletus, listen, we do not need the barbarians, the Persians, to fund our mission so that we can punish Athens for what it's done. We can handle that on our own. Callicratidas is capitalizing on that whole banner of free the Greeks. And just to really underline this point, when he captures Athenian towns, normally what would probably happen is that you would expect him to sell everyone into slavery to pay for this war, but instead he's very selective about it. The only people he'll sell into slavery are any Athenians that he captures and people who are already slaves. If you're not a slave when he captures the city, you're still going to be free. This is such a good propaganda and political move. It shows Athens as the tyrant, 
while also saying that Sparta will be the one to throw off this Athenian tyranny. This is a fundraising campaign. This is a stump speech. He's going around saying that Athens deserves its just punishment. Pay me, I'll make sure they get it. And this is extremely effective. He is so good at fundraising that his fleet grows well over the size of Lysander. Lysander had 90 ships in that battle we just talked about. Callicratidas, through these fundraising campaigns, puts together 170 ships. 170 triremes. Think about that. At that Battle of Sisychus, that extremely meaningful action where Athens came back into the forefront of the war, there was less than that on the entire battlefield. And just to top it off, while he's putting this fleet together, he is still so effective at capturing Athenian strongholds that Cyrus sees this and he sends him the cash anyway. So Callicratidas gets the money from Cyrus without ever having to even meet with him, while calling other cities to his banner of being the one that's going to free the Greeks, at the same time sending messages to the Athenian commanders, telling them that he will be the one to stop their affair with the sea, because she belongs to him. So is Conan, and his 70 ships grow closer to this massive fleet of the Spartans. You can imagine that Callicratidas anxious to engage them. At one point during daybreak, Callicratidas actually sees the Athenian fleet in the distance moving. Now Conan is an extremely capable commander, but against this many ships, what can you possibly do when you're outnumbered by a hundred? So Conan and the Athenian fleet just start to run. Callicratidas gives chase though, and some of his fastest triremes are able to catch the ones in the back of the Athenian fleet. He ends up capturing 30 of the Athenian triremes. Athens now has a fleet of 40 triremes. Conan is forced to find a bay to take shelter in and is essentially besieged by Callicratidas and the rest of the Spartan fleet outside of it, waiting for him to surrender. During the heyday of Athens, they had 250 triremes in the water at once, deployed all over the Greek world. The Athenian fleet, active Athenian fleet, has now been reduced to 40. And Athens doesn't even know about it. Conan takes two of his ships and makes a rush at the Spartan lines to try to break through. One ship is captured, the other makes it through the Spartan lines and carries news of this disaster back to Athens. And it does not take a lot of imagination to see how the people of Athens would be horrified. In the beginning of this episode, just a couple years ago, you could still believe that you're fighting to restore the Athenian Empire and maybe shove off into the corner the idea that you're actually fighting for survival. But at this point, when Athens has 40 active triremes in the water and that's its entire fleet, the Athenian people no longer suffer delusionment. They know that they are fighting for their survival. That Athenian fleet, those 40 triremes, that is the wooden wall that is separating them from a wave of Spartan-led and Persian-backed revolution and ultimate revenge that could very well wipe them out to a man, woman, and child. The Athenian people are horrified, and the situation is so dire because they don't even have the funds to raise another fleet or man it. Back in the day, if something like this happened when they were at their peak in the beginning of the Peloponnesian War... This would be bad news, but they'd raise another fleet, they'd sense a relief force, it wouldn't be a problem. 
John Hale, in his book, Lords of the Sea, estimates that you could take every male citizen in Athens right now and send them to the fleet, and you still wouldn't have enough to man a relief force big enough to make a difference. This is the situation that Athens is in right now. They don't have any money. They can't pay for more triremes. So what do they do? They plundered their own city. They went to the temples and began stripping silver off of the temple, off the buildings, gold statues of the goddess of victory, and melted her down for her gold. They took this gold, this silver that they plundered from their own city and began hammering into it the Athenian owl that was the mark of their currency. They created money out of their very city, out of their very temples. And this fleet of Athenian owls that they had were sent out across their empire to their allies to ask for help. They had a fleet commissioned in Macedon to be built and then brought back. Likewise, other silver and gold owls would be used to pay for the rowers. But where were the rowers? They didn't have enough manpower to even man this fleet if they got it built. In a last-ditch idea, some of the rich citizens of Athens began to come forward and offer to free their slaves if the slaves would fight for Athens, if they would row the ships, if they would be the crew. This inspired the people of Athens, the assembly, and they put out the call to all of Athens that any slaves that came forward to fight would be granted their freedom on the spot. Thousands came forward. The fleet arrived from Macedon, and less than 30 days from when they had heard about this disaster that Conan was stuck, they had taken the few ships they still had at home, brought them into repair, asked for new ones to be built at Macedon, asked for their allies to bring over other ships, and suddenly, out of nowhere, they had a fleet of 150 ships. 150 ships from plundering their own city. In charge of this fleet, of its outfitting, its construction, and its oversight, was a man named Pericles. This was the same Pericles that was the son of the original Pericles that led Athens to its greatness, that really virtually ruled Athens for 20 years, leading the democracy to the peak of Athenian power and then died right after the war started of plague. This was Pericles, his son. Pericles had even been born an illegitimate citizen, because remember, his mother, Aspasia, was not actually a citizen of Athens. The assembly back at that time, when he was still very young, had granted Pericles citizenship in honor of his father, and in honor of his father now, during this crisis, they would call him the Olympian. Theramenes and Thersebulus, they weren't put in charge of the fleet, but they were in charge of individual triremes in this fleet. Thrasylus, who we've seen before, very able commander, originally a hoplite, was put in charge of the fleet as well. There were eight generals in total put in charge of this fleet, and collectively, eight generals, 150 triremes, headed east to save Conan and reinforce that wooden wall. If you want one more theme in this war so far, It's to be brought low, brought to your knees, where you think there is no hope left to move forward, and somehow finding reserves to draw on. Thucydides even comments on this. He says that democracies are usually at their best when they're at their lowest. They become resourceful and sacrificial. And so, so it is that somehow Athens has managed to put together another last hope. 
and it heads east to confront the Spartan fleet. The Athenian fleet closes the distance, comes up to where Callicratidas is pinning in Conan, and camps nearby. Now, Callicratidas is so eager for battle here that he can see the fires burning of the Athenian camp in the distance, and so actually sets out at midnight to go attack them, but it doesn't work. A storm kicks up, he's not able to get all his ships out, he has to turn around and go back, and so he waits until the next day. But this is Callicratidas, you can see how eager he is for battle. Now imagine how much more amplified that is when he finds out that the prophecy for the next day predicts that he will die, but the Spartans will win. Now, you would imagine that this has the opposite effect, right? You'd imagine that maybe Callicratidas would try to find a way out of this battle so he wouldn't die. But he's a Spartan. He's a Spartan Spartan. Think back to Leonidas. Battle of Thermopylae, movie the 300, whatever you want to use. Think back to Leonidas. When Leonidas went to the Battle of Thermopylae, he had a prophecy that a king would die, him, but that the Spartans would win eventually. And what did he do with this information? He sold his life dearly. Him and the men he was with, both Sparta and the other city-states there, sold their lives so dearly that we talk about them today. Callicratidas, a man who has already shown himself to be a lion, just received a very similar prophecy, and he is going up against an army that is untried, untrained, and mainly comprised of recently freed slaves. People that the Spartans would probably disdain. This is what Athens is up against. The following day, it is Thrasyllus' turn to be in charge. This is the way that this would work with eight generals in charge of this fleet, is that it would rotate through each day. A process we have not seen in a long time. Thrasyllus, though, even though he was a hoplite in the past, he's taken to commanding these naval forces and he knows that he needs to leverage this weakness of Athens somehow. What can he do to bolster it against this Spartan might? He takes the Athenian fleet and uses some of the islands to arrange the fleet around. You see, what he does is that he breaks the fleet into two really strong portions, puts them out on the wings. And the way these wings are organized is that instead of one straight row to come smash up against the Spartans, it's two staggered rows. Remember, if you're a great crew, what you want to do to the enemy ship is juke around to the side, smash it in the side or the stern. If you're in two staggered rows, if the enemy slips through the first row, well, there's the second row right there to catch him. So this is where he puts his strongest troops, is in two staggered lines out on the wings. In the front, he puts just a really weak center, untrained troops, even by the standards of this fleet, rings of shoals around them and the islands right behind them so they can't be ambushed or hit from the weak points. This is how he presents his fleet to the Spartans is effectively dug in as much as a naval force can be. Now Thrasyllus determines the strategy and the formation of this naval fleet but the thing is we don't have walkie-talkies or any way to communicate in real time. And so these eight generals are staggered throughout the fleet, each one commanding the ships immediately around them. So once the battle starts, what's really going to happen here is a giant series of smaller battles, each one with the general commanding the local ships around him. So the fleet of Athens comes out in this formation, 155 ships strong now, and waits. 
The Spartan fleet, led by Callicratidas, comes out as well. He has 120 ships with him because he had to leave a good portion to go keep Conan bottled in this harbor. He comes out with his 120 ships, and as he's looking forward towards the Athenian fleet, he can see them in the distance. And one of the people with him points out that, you know, this doesn't really make any sense to attack them right now. They're in a strong position, they're lined up and waiting, but they have to save their commander. They have to go save Conan, and so someday, sooner or later, they're going to have to come over here and attack us. Why don't we just find a strong position and wait for them? But this is Callicratidas. The sea is his mistress, and he will have his revenge on Athens. He charges forward. The 120 ships of Callicratidas are arranged in a straight line, all moving forward, but Callicratidas and about 10 others around him pull out ahead of the fleet. He charges into the Athenian fleet off on the left side, where Pericles and a bunch of the other generals are commanding. Callicratidas is smashing his way through the Athenian lines, determined to find that beautiful death that the Spartans hold so highly, and he is ripping into the Athenian ranks. He is smashing ship after ship and working his way closer and closer to Pericles, the young Olympian. Now, if we zoom out as Callicratidas is smashing his way into the Athenians, what we're going to see is that as the Spartans and their fleet is moving forward, the Athenians and their fleet is spreading out. Athens outnumbers Sparta here by about 35 ships, and so as Sparta is coming towards them, Athens is spreading out to encircle them. The Spartans see this, and so what they do is they take their entire fleet and they split it into two to engage the two main wings of the Athenian fleet. So what we have here is a massive battle. We're pushing 300 triremes engaging at once in two different areas between four different sub-fleets. This is the largest Greek-on-Greek -Greek naval battle we have seen so far. As Callicratidas continues to smash his way through the Athenians, ramming ship after ship with his guard of other ships around him, he eventually runs into the very ship of Pericles, the Olympian. When he rams Pericles' ship, Pericles takes advantage of this and throws grappling hooks over to the enemy ship. Pericles jumps over to the enemy ship, bringing marines, and the forces of Athens on this trireme close in around Callicratidas. Callicratidas fights on and on, taking wound after wound, when one of the men of Pericles run up, strike Callicratidas, and it knocks him over the side of the ship. The armor of Callicratidas weighs him down, so he has no chance of swimming. He falls into the water and is dragged beneath the waves. The Spartans around him, though, see this glorious, beautiful death of Callicratidas, and instead of falling back, are inspired. The ships around them just start to fight harder. But over on the other side, at a distance, on the other wing, at this other sub-battle that's taking place here, they start to fall apart. They're already being encircled by the Athenians who outnumbered them. They just saw their leader die, who was the real lion in this entire fight. And it's right at this crucial point that the center of the Athenians, as weak as these triremes are, come charging out and hit the wavering Spartans. One side of the Spartan lines break, and so it's only a matter of time as they're running away that the rest of the Athenians can wrap around those inspired ships that Callicratidas was initially commanding and beat them. The Athenian fleet 
freed slaves, unexperienced men, give chase to the Spartans, and the Spartans lose 77 ships from this massive fleet. That's over half. Athens only lost 25 ships in this enormous fight. Now, this would be a stunning victory by itself, but it's even more so because this is a fleet of untrained men. It's very likely that this is the first time some of these men have ever seen combat. Yet Thrasyllus, in his knowledge of how to use these islands, use the geography of the water, was able to position the Athenians in such a strong position that they could hold their own against the Spartan fleet, who was, ironically, better trained at this point. And then we have Pericles, who made one of the most decisive actions of this battle when he decided to board the trireme of Callicratidas and attack him directly. Since Callicratidas was killed in this fighting, this is one of the things that triggered the rout that led to the Athenian victory. This was such a stunning victory that when the people, the ships that were guarding Conan, bottling him into this bay, heard about what happened, they just left. They left Conan, they let him come out of his bay and carry on his way. Now, of all the military commanders that we have covered so far, I think Callicratidas is one of the most interesting for a number of reasons. Now, he is unquestionably a lion of a man. He is recklessly brave. He's inspiring not only on the battlefield, but when fundraising money for his fleet. He stood up the Persian prince just because the Persian prince was taking too long to see him. He's bold. He's daring. He doesn't back down. But this is also what his downfall was. Compare this to Lysander. Lysander waited in this bay while he was trapped by Alcibiades, gathering intel, allowing deserters to come into his fleet, and then when he knew the enemy was weak, he went out and attacked it. In many ways, Callicratidas did the opposite. He came out, saw the Athenians were really strong in a position that was not only fortified by the islands around it, but he also was outnumbered, yet he attacked directly anyway. He thought he was going to die, and he accomplished that in an incredible way, but his reckless bravery is also one of the things that led to this defeat. Now, to be fair, he thought that he was going to die and the Spartans would win, so he just wanted to sell his life dearly, so let's not be unfair to him there. But still, Callicratidas has earned his beautiful death, but at the cost of 77 Spartan ships. Now, even as stunning as this victory is, the 77 ships from the Spartans have been lost, but that's still only half the job. This is a giant fleet, and not only is there the fleet of the Spartans right here that they just fought, there's also the rest of the ships still guarding Conan back in that cove. So between the ships that escaped from this battle and then the ones that meet back up that were guarding Conan, there's still about 80 ships left in the Spartan alliance and their fleet. Athens still needs to defeat those before this problem is really gone. This is only about half the job. So right after this battle, all the generals and the rest of the Athenian ships come back around on the other side of this island. They're downwind, so they're kind of blocked from a view of any weather coming in. It's a little quieter in the lee of the island, so it's easier to have their meeting. So they're all talking, and they're trying to figure out what to do next. And the big concern here is that they want to be able to hit these Spartan ships before they all meet up with other Spartan ships in the area and become one giant fleet again. So there's some generals that want to do that. Other generals want to stay behind and try to collect all the wounded and the dead and the living too. I mean, with these triremes, when you bust a hole in the side of one, yeah, it's going to sink eventually. But before it does, these ships are made of light wood to float and be fast. And so even if you do put a trireme out of commission, a lot of times the ship would still float on top of the water for quite a while after the battle was done. 
And so after a ship is put out of the battle, even if it's not fighting, a lot of the crew could have survived, and they're hanging on to this wreckage waiting to be rescued. So some of the generals want to go back and make sure they can pick up everybody, and in the end, what they decide to do is split the difference. They take 47 ships out of their fleet, and they leave them with Thrasybulus and Theramenes. Remember, they aren't generals right now. They're just in charge of individual triremes. But they're given 47 ships and put in charge of this rescue mission. Okay, you two guys, go take care of rescuing all the wounded. Get the dead out of the water. Any living you find, terrific. We're going to go take all the rest of the ships and try to catch the Spartan fleet before they join up with reinforcements. Sounds like a good plan. But here's the problem. While they were in the lee of this island, they didn't notice that the weather had been changing. A storm had been rolling in, and as soon as they come around the corner out from under the shelter of this island, they are blasted with winds, waves, rain. Now, between the storm being so strong and this recent battle being so big, with different groups of triremes fighting all over the place, this storm scatters the wreckage from this battle over an area of four square miles. It's about 10 square kilometers, and it is far too big of an area, especially in a big storm, to go out and try to rescue all these people. And so both fleets fail in their mission. The proper Athenian fleet isn't able to catch up with the Spartans and engage them. Thersebulus and Theramenes aren't able to rescue all the sailors that are out there stranded and need help, but there's no way to get to them. And so, regrettably, there's nothing anybody can do about it, and a lot of these men perish while waiting to be rescued. Regrettable as this is, though, it is on the tail of a massive victory. And so when Thrasybulus and Theramenes go back to Athens, they're welcomed as heroes at first. All of Athens is rejoicing to hear about this victory. They're ecstatic for the generals, but the generals in the main Athenian fleet had to stay over in the Aegean. They're still chasing down the Spartan fleet. The generals are based out of Samos conducting their operations. But back in Athens, they're ecstatic. Over half of the Spartan fleet has just been wiped out. But then the story of the battle starts to come out. People hear about what happened, and then people start to hear about the aftermath. And people start to hear about the storm. And what we have here is a little bit of a slow burn. At first, it's just you know, rumors going through that maybe the generals didn't do their job. And then people are getting angry because they think the generals didn't do their job. As people start asking questions, there is a slow shift from a focus on the victory to what happened afterwards. And Thrasybulus and Theramenes are there. They're the ones that are fielding these questions. So when the people of Athens are angry, they're some of the people who were actually there that took place in this battle, and they can tell everyone, hey, it's nobody's fault. This big storm kicked up, and we couldn't do anything about it. It's not the general's fault. It's not our fault. It's just something that happened. It's very unfortunate, but there's nobody to be blamed here. The people of Athens keep asking questions, though. I mean, these are their family members, their friends that fought in this battle won, and then were left to die in the water. So they want exact answers. They want to know who's responsible, what's the reasoning. They need answers from the people in charge, the generals. On these campaigns, the generals are in charge of just about every single thing that happens. They have authority. So let's ask the generals what happened. They send a messenger to Samos asking the generals to explain themselves. Now, when the generals get this message, they're horrified. The Greeks place a lot of importance on the proper burial of the dead. So much so, that it's almost as bad as not rescuing the people that were alive. Even just recovering the bodies and making sure they can be buried properly is important. If you don't properly bury the dead, 
People will say that they'll wander around forever in the afterlife, aimless, condemned to be a ghost, wandering the shores of the place that they died, things like that. But also it condemns the person that committed the ritual offense. We've seen this a while back when Pericles, the first Pericles, was in charge. His family was thought of as diseased because of something one of his ancestors did a long time ago. Not only does it condemn the person, it condemns the family and your entire lineage. So these Athenian generals in Samos are terrified. They put together a letter, but they need to account for their actions in a way that doesn't make them look guilty. So they talk about the storm, they blame it on the storm, but they also say, listen, we gave 47 ships to Theramenes and Thersibulus. It was their job to take care of these guys. And so if they were dead and wounded, left in the water, don't look at us. We gave the task to them. So when this letter gets back to Athens, this is what really turns this slow burn into a full fire. Because now people are accusing each other, and simply by accusing each other, you're kind of acknowledging there's guilt here. You're acknowledging that somebody did something wrong, it just wasn't me. And so Athens recalls all the generals from Samos. And if they're not looking guilty already, two of the generals just take off on being recalled. They go into self-imposed exile rather than just coming back to Athens to explain what they did. And this makes the Athenian people think there's probably blame here somewhere. It's just a matter of figuring out where it is. So these six generals now, they come back to Athens, Thersibulus, Theramenes are there, and they all go before the Council of 500. Now, we've referred to these guys in the past as the steering committee. They're the ones that usually sets the agenda for the main assembly that's actually making the laws and voting to approve or disapprove things. And although it's a little unclear, we do know that they served in some capacity as a criminal court for really high-profile crimes, like high-profile murders or things like this. And so, these six generals now, Thrasybulus, Theramenes, they're all before this council, and they're kind of accusing each other at first. Thrasybulus and Theramenes are pointing at the generals. The generals are saying, don't look at us. We gave you this task. Why didn't you do it? But the one thing that they keep bringing up every time they might even accuse each other is the storm. They're talking about this big storm that kicked up. And so eventually, the council starts to focus on that. And the two sides, instead of accusing each other, they start to focus on the storm as well. Everybody starts talking about the storm. The generals and Thrasybulus and Theramenes bring forward people who are actually at the battle, steersmen, experienced naval commanders, to talk about how bad the storm was and that, yes, it was just simply impossible to rescue these men. Things seem to be going pretty well for this group, but it is getting dark. And there is not enough time left in the day to take votes from everybody and finish this thing up. So instead, they postpone it a few days. The 500, the council, is going to figure out the best way to proceed when this trial resumes in a few days. Meanwhile, everybody can call it off. During this hiatus, though, between the time that this initial trial starts and then resumes a few days later, there's a holiday. This holiday is the conventional time for all the young men in Athens to be welcomed in as proper citizens and full adults. It's very meaningful. It's very sentimental. It's the time where your children will officially become full citizens of Athens. It's a proud day for many parents, and it also reminds everyone of the sons that they lost in this battle. So when the council resumes to continue this trial, a family shows up. 
a family that lost people in this battle, they showed up with shaved heads and in mourning clothes and crying out to the council to please give us justice against these men who let our sons drown in the waters. Now what happens next is such an abrupt shift. We need to look at it with a little bit of a closer lens. You see, a man from the council steps up and he proposes that all the generals should be tried together with one vote, guilty or not guilty, instead of individually with each person giving their case. And we shouldn't decide this as the council. This is so important. We need to bring this directly before the assembly. What is being proposed is for all six of these generals to be brought before the assembly of Athens, the entire assembly to just simply vote yes or no. And if they find them guilty, that is a death sentence. This is so far outside the scope of Athenian law. Normally, each person would be able to give their own defense. A jury, picked at random, according to Athenian law, would then hear out both sides and then determine a verdict for each individual man. Cops would probably look at a jury of about a thousand for really important cases. Instead, the entire assembly is going to vote in one single measure, and the Athenians will either condemn or spare these men who just won such a battle. This includes men like Pericles and Thrasyllus, heroes, unquestionable heroes of this battle. So what created this shift? Why is this so abrupt? Now one, emotions are high right now. There is no question that this recent holiday reminded all of Athens of the people that they just lost, of their sons and brothers. And so there is a lot of emotion going on in Athens right now, but we also have to look at something Xenophon points out. We are out of the text of Thucydides right now, and now we are in Hellenica by Xenophon. One of the accusations that he makes during this time is that Theramenes actually bribed this family to come forward and plead their case. And that him or his supporters also bribed this man in the council to take this trial to the assembly. Now, of course, it is hard to know exactly what happened here, but in the end, it doesn't really matter that much. Because it's determined that these generals will be tried by the Athenian assembly. One vote, guilty, not guilty, life or death. These men, these generals are brought before the assembly and emotions are already running high. But they are only intensified when a witness from this battle steps forward and describes to the assembly the scene of men drowning around him in the water. A lot of these people couldn't swim, and this man that is speaking to the assembly, he says that he is holding on to this piece of wreckage, watching people die around him, watching the living call out for help from the generals while the generals passed them by and allowed them to die. This sets the assembly on fire, and they want these generals to be found guilty. Anybody that starts to speak in support of the generals is immediately shouted down after hearing this story. The only speed bump here is that the people who run the assembly, they call for votes and things like that, think of them as moderators, kind of. They stand up and they say that it's illegal to try the generals as a group. There's no law that's dictating what we're doing here. And just by chance, because these men were drawn by lot for the day, Socrates, the philosopher, just so happens to be one of these men. And so these men stand up and protest and tell the assembly, this crowd of 6,000 or more, that what you're doing right now is illegal. There's no law that governs this. And the assembly does not back down. Instead, somebody proposes 
that these moderators be tried with the generals. You're going to defend these guys after what they did? You can be tried with them. And the moderators back down, except for Socrates. Socrates stands up and tells these men that what they're doing is illegal here, and they threaten him with everything. They threaten to put him with the generals and try him. They threaten to charge him with treason, and Socrates refuses to back down in front of this huge crowd of Athenians. In the space that Socrates creates, another man steps forward and is able to tell the assembly all the ways that this is wrong. He describes a bunch of ways that this could legally take place, yeah, we need to try these guys, but the death sentence is a little harsh. Here are a bunch of other laws you can try them under, and it will be done legally. He tells them that the generals don't deserve this. Look at what they just accomplished. They couldn't help it. There was a giant storm. But it's not quite enough. Somebody calls for the vote to be taken. They say that you're stalling. This is an illegal procedure to stall this long. We need to decide if these generals will be tried as a group. The assembly passes that... And Socrates, hoping that the assembly will see the error of their ways here, calls for a vote to be taken to see if the generals are guilty. Now picture what it must have been like here. If you're one average person in the assembly, you weren't at this battle, you don't know what happened, and as you're casting your vote, as you're dropping it in either the yes urn or the no urn, you probably hear the wailing family members around you. You can see the guy that testified, who was at the battle. He knows, right? He saw these men die, and he saw the generals leave them. And so it's probably through a combination of fear and anger, not only from this battle, but from their situation as a whole. These are desperate people, even if they did just win this fight. The generals are found guilty. Thrasylus, Pericles, literal living heroes of Athens, are condemned to death. They are given a cup of hemlock to drink. And what they would begin to feel is first a numbness setting in in their hands and their feet. And as they walked around the jail, the numbness would spread up through their limbs, up through their arms, and begin to settle into their body. You would feel your mouth go numb so that you could no longer speak as you sat there and waited to die. And it's when it finally reaches your lungs, your lungs stop working and you effectively drowned. Thrasylus, the hoplite that became a general and led Athens to victory, has just been killed. Pericles, the young Olympian, son of his father, who had a brief meteoric rise in Athens, has just been extinguished. Athens, throughout this episode, has plundered not only its city, but its people have been spent. They used so many men, when they ran out of men, they freed slaves. Athens has brought every asset that it has to this war to be used in hopes for ultimate victory. And this trial is not just an obvious perversion of justice, it's more than that. Athens has treated its allies poorly in the past, but now things are happening within the walls of Athens. Listen to this quote by Melissa Lane on justice and the role that it plays not only in all governments but especially in the Athenian government in her book The Birth of Politics. She says this about justice. Justice is a radical idea because if people's sense of fairness is strained too far, their very sense of belonging and commitment to a common political community may snap. 
What she's saying there is that by perverting justice, you're not just risking the lives of the men that you try, instead you're risking the very fabric that holds Athens together. And the bright spot here is that Athens realizes this. Almost immediately, they recognize what a horrendous thing they have done and they regret it. And the assembly starts to think about, how did this happen? How did we condemn these men to death? And they look at the council, at the ones who propose that this should be tried by the assembly. That's illegal. Why did they do that? And so instead, they then try these men. The ringleader actually escapes and then later comes back to Athens. And Athens despises him so much that he starves to death within the walls of Athens, rejected by the city that he's from. Athens recognizes the wrongdoing here, but it does not change the fact that they just executed some of the best military leaders they had. The only other silver lining in this is that because of this Athenian victory, Sparta offers a peace treaty. But I don't even need to tell you what happens, do I? Athens just had this victory. They're willing to put one more coin in that slot machine. They think that their luck is finally changing and they want to push just a little farther to get that pendulum all the way to ultimate victory. They reject the Spartan peace treaty and continue the war, but now they're doing so with a dwindling supply of military leaders. These generals that were just condemned to die have fought bravely at sea. They have survived battles and storms across the waters of the Aegean Sea. They have been covered in blood and water on behalf of Athens, but now they would drown on dry land at the justice of an angry crowd. 